let's pause and just uh, pray and ask God to guide us and uh, uh, our thinking even as we work through some of this material. Father, I thank you for these men and women sitting in this room and their commitment to the advance of the gospel uh, throughout the world, but particularly in this place uh, and throughout the, this continent. I ask, Lord, that, uh, that this time would be profitable, that uh, you would guide uh, my speaking, but also that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us. And Lord, whatever is not profitable, we, we ask that it would simply fall to the ground. But uh, we do pray that you would give us... Um, keener insights in relation to ministry, that we might be more effective for the gospel, that we might be able to, to communicate your gospel to people who are, uh, are very resistant to the gospel, who are very skeptical, who are often, uh, they've left the church uh, and, and have very little use for it. But I pray, Lord, that as we, uh, as we are trying to work for you in this world, that you would really equip us sharpen us in any number of ways that we might be effective in in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me start with the the primary thing, which uh, uh, um, is planting churches in a city is actually different than planting churches in other contexts. Now, that may seem so obvious, but, uh, but, but honestly, I don't think we often take it seriously enough. And so we tend to do kind of the same thing we do in any number of contexts, and, and we kind of cross all the different contexts and just do the same thing. But, but we have learned, and I think in New York, and, and I come in the spirit of kind of sharing things with you. And by the way, this was originally drafted for a North American context rather than yours. So there may be some kind of North American terminology and assumptions in this uh, that, you know, feel free to just kind of discount those and kind of figure it out for your own context. But... Um, oftentimes we don't really take seriously the differences of working within a city context. A couple years ago, I was talking to Rigby, and, and uh, at that point, they had just sent out two guys. Tieran, where's Tieran? He's in the back there. Uh, he had just gone into a, a suburban context. Kevin Murphy had just gone into the, to the bowl. I think relatively the same number of kind of people that were committed very gifted guys, you know, I think very spiritual guys, very godly men, well-equipped, that sort of thing. Tyrion immediately had greater number numerical success than Kevin in the city. So we were playing golf together. Actually, I play flog, he plays golf, you know, so, but, uh, but we're going around the, the course together, and Rigby was saying, you know, I don't really understand, you know, what the difference is. And, and, uh, and as, we, as we began to talk about it, I said, and I didn't really know either guy at all, but I said, you know what, I'll bet I can give you a number of reasons why the one in Tokai has done better. It's Tokai, right? Yeah. Uh, the, one, the one in Tokai has done better than the one in the bowl. And Riggy said, how could you do that without even knowing the guys? And so then we began to talk a little bit about the differences in the context and how it, the common ground situation, what happened is intuitively you developed a contextualized form of ministry that fit that particular, you know, the southern suburbs of, of Cape Town, and so you go into another southern suburb that is very similar to it, and even though you may not be conscious of the decisions that you made, you actually take the same methodology, and it works. And it really isn't a difference of godliness. It's a difference of context. So this other guy, Kevin, goes into the city radically different. In fact, you know, it, all you have to do is go about two miles outside of Cape Town, and it's completely different. But once you come inside, it's different. And I'm not sure why it is, but the dynamics of cities literally change the way in which people relate to one, to one another, the way in which they think, and some of this is trying to get at what some of those differences are. But having said that, let me start with basically several disclaimers. You know, so I, I want to actually kind of blunt my argument before, before we get to it. So, so, so let me say at, at least three things. Actually, there's, there's a fourth here. But in many, many ways... Uh, the suburban context is actually uh, becoming more urban all the time. The lines between urban and suburban or urban and some other context are not nearly as clean as what they used to be. And there's a number of, uh, of reasons for that. And, and one of the things you'll see here is that in many ways, urbanization, uh, well, no, not, not urbanization, the, the, the thinking of the urban environment is actually invading everywhere. Part of that's because of technology, the internet, you know, all these kinds of things. But, but uh, it, a number of years ago, I was traveling through Turkey, 
we had just seen ancient Ephesus, you know, and we're traveling along, and I'm seeing, I see this shepherd. You guys talk about shepherds here, but I saw this shepherd out on this hillside, and he's, you know, in the typical garb, and, and, uh, and I think, oh, how primitive or whatever. And uh, he reaches into the folds of his garment and pulls out his cell phone. I realize, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's not, he's not disconnected, actually. In fact, all of Africa is becoming far more, more connected than what it's ever, ever been before. Uh, you know, so it's interesting how the urban environment is actually invading uh, uh, the suburban environment. So the suburban environment is actually, in many ways, becoming more susceptible to whatever you do within the, uh, the, the urban environment. But actually, the suburbs themselves are changing. Many of the suburbs have literally been overwhelmed by urban sprawl. So no longer are they located outside the city. No longer are they monolithic, homogenous, or homogeneous. I don't know how you guys say the word in, in, in this country. We speak the same language, but we say it differently. Uh, but but they're, they're no longer these kind of clean, easy, you know, different kinds of environments. They're much more, much more mixed up. In fact, so, a lot of times you have, to, you have to do a good bit of work to try to figure out what the context you're ministering in really thinks and how they feel and what drives them and, and, and that sort of thing. But so, so many of the, the things we're, that I'm talking about here are, I would say, are generalizations that you have to be careful about, you know, but I think that we can learn from, from, from some of these things. So uh, uh, Rigby said he'd done his homework before he came, so he, he gave me the quote from the first page. So I'm not sure he read past the first page, but, uh, but, but, but he says one of the things he liked was, was this one down at the bottom. What works in the city usually works in the suburbs, but not the reverse. It's really interesting. Uh, 1990, I think it was, it might have been 89, Willow Creek, very successful church in the suburbs of Chicago, goes over to Paris to try to plant a church right in the heart of Paris. They lift up their methodology, and I think it was actually a great methodology for my generation and for suburban Chicago, but they lift up that methodology, they come over to Paris, and they do exactly what they were doing in the suburbs of Chicago in Paris. What do you think? Do you think, think they were successful? Absolutely not. It was like nails on a chalkboard. It was so grating. It was so American, for one, but also all the different kinds of of factors of the methodology did not fit skeptical Parisians. Uh, At that point, some of the most hostile people to the gospel in the entire world, the most most gospel-resistant. So the the things that they did intuitively that that, that, that were, were incredibly effective in America did not work in that city. I think they poured $2 million into it. After about three years, they had to pull the plug, and they had, and they had to go back home with it. You know? And uh, although that was a failure, it was a failure that they, that they learned from. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with what Willow Creek was doing, but it had to do with the context and what they were doing in that context. So, so I think we have to deal with these same things. So let me also uh, talk about this factor. It's on the second page here. The reality is that most of us, most churches and ministers in evangelical circles, are not really prepared to succeed within the city. We haven't been trained to deal with the, 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 the dynamics of, of, of the city. It's a little dark in here, so I'm going to have to use my old man's glasses now. But um, uh, the sensibilities, in essence, of evangelical churches were developed in another context. And when they're imported into the urban context, they, you often find they only work partially, 70%, 60%, you know, sometimes less. It depends on the given city and, and the given, given context. But you've got to be very, very careful about what you're doing, and you've got to actually do the thinking to, to, to adjust your own thinking about what that context is. But most evangelical churches, uh, in the, uh, and I should have put suburb, suburban churches here, have tended to be middle class and corporate in their culture, with a high value placed on privacy, safety, homogeneity, sentimentality, space, order, control, all those kinds of things. The urban center, those, those values are not there. They kind of throw those out the window. In fact, uh, the, the young guy that's been, that, that's been uh, um, gracious enough to drive me around today, he's my chauffeur today. I've never had a chauffeur before, uh, Faunas, but, uh, but he, he comes from uh, about three hours north of, of Cape Town on the, on, the, on the western Cape there. And I was asking him about Joburg. You know, would you ever think about uh, ministering in Joburg? And basically his answer was, I don't think so. It's too busy. It's too fast-paced. It's too complex. 
you know, it's threatening in many ways. You know, I mean, the urban context, it really, it really, really is different. And, and the, the, the very things that we develop in another context often won't work. So you just don't know. How would I go about doing it? It's not necessarily lack of courage, because I think a lot of, of our young leaders are courageous. But, but walking into an urban center, they just simply wouldn't know what, what, what to do. That's no criticism of you, Faunus, by the, by the way. Uh, he's talking about going back to the Western Cape to plant, so you guys may see him down there. But, uh, but uh, people who live in relatively homogenous cultures, and I would say that every place is more culturally uh, uh, homogenous than, than a big city, are often actually unaware of many of their assumptions. Um, when I first came to, to, to New York City, uh, I, at that point I, was, I, was, um, I would have been described as a Sabbatarian. You know what a Sabbatarian is? In Presbyterian circles, it's a, it's a common term. But the idea is that Sunday is the Sabbath and that all people should, should observe it as a day of rest. You shouldn't go to restaurants on Sunday. You shouldn't do any of those kinds of things so that people can rest. But the, the principle it, it was that, that we were taught was that Sunday is the Sabbath and therefore it's a Sabbath for all people everywhere from the time of Christ onward. So I come to New York City and I'm living and working alongside of Orthodox Jews who more religiously than I observed Saturday as a Sabbath. And it literally confronted me with the notion, can I say that those people are sinning because they're observing Saturday as a Sabbath rather than Sunday? I mean, is my hermeneutic correct when I look at the Scripture and the Lord's Day is now the Sabbath? I don't think so. I had to reevaluate that, that assumption. Now, that's, that was uh, particularly an, an egregious one. But all the time, we make assumptions that are not correct in relation to, to the urban context. And many times, the things that we have assumed theologically need to be reevaluated as well. We need to step back and say, okay, wait a minute, how should I think about this? You know, one of the issues that has been confronting American culture, which is pa- basically resolved at this point, many evangelicals say that we have lost, you know, the issue, had, had to do with civil unions between gay partners, you know, marriages or, or whatever. And the, the, the Christian community was, was pretty divided uh, 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 about the issue. But many people in the urban situation, evangelicals committed to the Scripture, Orthodox, all that kind of thing, many of them became positive about civil unions. Not because they were believing that it was right for, for people of the same sex to literally marry, marry one another, but they saw it as an issue of justice. You know, can, should we not give the right for gay, gay, gay partners to, to be able to visit one another in the hospital or to make life and death situation, you know, uh, um, uh, decisions or even to, to have the same insurance benefits and those kinds of things? Now, I don't know how you stand on those kinds of things. I'm not even sure how I stand on, on many of those kinds of things. But, but what, I, what I'm saying is that those issues will confront your theological understanding of the text, and it drives you back to the Word to actually say, okay, well, wait a minute. What, what, what is the, the right way of doing these things? And we may have drawn the wrong conclusions, and a lot of it has become because we're victims of our own culture. You know, um, one of the things that, that um, one of the stories that Tim tells is that one time he's, he was preaching and he was talking about multi-ethnicity and, and you know, uh, multi, multiculturalism and that kind of stuff. And there was a uh, a young black business guy that came up to him afterwards. And he says, rather confront, in a confrontive way, this is New York, so you're, you always confront one another. There is no such thing as politeness. I think Ben was talking about politeness. There is politeness, but that's an overstatement. But he comes up, up to Tim and he says to him afterwards, he said, you know the problem with you white guys is? And Tim said, no, you know, what's our problem? He said, you don't think you have a culture. So you talk about African-American culture or Hispanic culture or Haitian culture or this culture or that, that culture, you don't think you have a culture. And Tim, Tim realized he's right. You know, you know and, and the fact that what the, what the black guy said is this, you just, you just do, the, do the way things, you do things the way you think is the right way. So it's not a cultural way of doing things, but you assume that it's the right way of doing things. And so th- there's a sense in which when you come into the urban context, you actually have to step back and say, okay, what are the cultural wrappings that I've put around the gospel or the way in which I do, do, do ministry, the, the various assumptions that I make about how church should be done or how relationships should be approached or any of those kinds of things. Now, when you go to a foreign country, you usually are aware that 
oh, I have to think about that culture because it's, it's radically different than mine. But oftentimes when we're, when we're making a, a, a five-mile journey or a 10-kilometer journey or whatever it might be into a city, we don't make that same assumption. You know, we just kind of assume that, that, that we can do things just as we had. But traditional evangelical churches tend to be pietistic and give believers little help in actually understanding how to maintain their Christian worldview and still participate in the world within the, the urban center, which is often a world of arts, business, ethical challenges, moral challenges, all, you know, all those kinds of things. By the way, I won't go through, through it necessarily completely systematically, but, but an urban church cannot do this, the same kind of discipleship that is often done within the suburban context. Or a type of discipleship that pulls people out of their work and into church activity. You've got, you actually have to figure out how to disciple people in their work. And that, that, that has to do with some of the characteristics of, of urban dweller, dwellers. So let me say a couple of things about the urban context. And I'll go back to the first page a little bit as, as, I, as I talk about this. But in, in ancient times, what defined a city? What made a city? Well, for the most part, it was the, it was the wall. They, they erected a wall, and that wall created density because you couldn't be, build a huge city. And by the way, most of the cities back then were not overly large. 50,000 to 120,000, maybe 150,000 were about the largest cities in, in the entire world. But that wall created density, which led to an intensity, and also you know, uh, created a diversity. People were, were coming in contact with, with one another. But the, what the wall provided for them was security. Security from wild animals, security from robbers, those kinds of things. So once you got in the gate, you're okay. The modern city is similar in a certain way in that it provides security in relation to jobs, employment, you know, a lot of services and th- those kinds of things. So it's not quite the same thing, but it is similar. And, and it's interesting how the cities are growing and continuing to grow. Uh, yesterday we were listening to a, um, a South African Air Force, I think he was a colonel or maybe he was higher than that, but he had, he, had, he had come into the group that we were, that we were talking, about, talking to yesterday. He was given, given us demographic information about Africa. It was unbelievably helpful stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm going to email his PowerPoint presentation to some of your leaders that I know. And if you guys want to distribute it, you know, you know, feel, feel free to do that. But he, w- he, w- he was talking about the continuing trend of urbanization in, in Africa itself. And although South Africa is not... Um, is not expected to grow as rapidly as the rest of the continent. In fact, he was saying it's almost flat line. When you look at Tanzania, Tanzania or Tanzania, I don't know how you guys say it. Yeah, people say it two different ways, though. I, I hear all the time. I keep asking. Tanzania is the right way? Okay. Now I know the right way. <laughs> Until I get corrected by somebody else. <laughs> but both Tanzania and Nigeria are both expected to grow by 2035, from now to 2035, by uh, Nigeria by 69%, and Tanzania by, I think it was 73%. Was that, was that right? Somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark. Most of that growth will take place within the cities. So that Lagos right now is about 21 million. It's expected, at least by, by 2050, if not by 2035, to basically double in size. It'll be in, in excess of 40 million by, by, by mid-century. You know, that's huge urbanization. So people are continue to flock, flock in, 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 into the cities. Uh, so we've got to deal with urban, urban realities across the, the entire world, but even, even within, within your own country. So let's talk a little bit, bit about the, the urban culture or the urban center. And um, I think I had a little exp- explanation. Yeah, I guess it was on the first, first page. But um, I'm not quite sure what vocabulary we should be using um, I've tried to convince Tim that he shouldn't use city center anymore. Uh, he's not listening to me, you know. But in most of the world, city center means CBD, which is not necessarily the place where people live. Uh, you know, but Manhattan is a place you both live and work. So city center works for them. You know, so I've been, I've been trying to say, Tim, let's use urban center. Urban center is better in, in certain ways because it doesn't quite connote uh, CBD. But many of, the, many of the cities in the world actually now are, are not, there's not just one center, there's actually three or four centers. I mean, we're sitting in one. Aren't we in Santon or very close to Santon? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and in Delhi, I think there's six or seven major urban centers. 
L.A., where's downtown? Where's the center of L.A.? If you've ever been to L.A., there's not one. There's actually three or maybe four you know, uh, centers that, that, that people flock to. And that's the way most of the big cities across the world are. There's no longer one center. But when we're talking about urban center, we're not talking about inner city poor in particular. So we, we try, we're trying to use the term to describe people that are living and working within the heart of the city. Many of them may be poor, but many of them are also young creatives, young professionals, established professionals, business people, political people, people you know, uh, in, in power in terms of the government or in terms of education or you know, corporate entities or, or those kinds of things. So that's the, that's the kind of, of, of uh, demographic that we have in mind as we talk about a lot of these things. But uh, an urban center is an area where there's a confluence of residences for professionals and or creatives, major work and job concentrations, and significant uh, cultural activity, and often institutions. And all of them are in close proximity uh, to one another. Who lives in those places, generally? Well, they tend to be young. A lot of them are single professionals and creatives. A lot of them are the hip and artistic. And pretty much all of them are trying to make it, whatever make it uh, means. Uh, But they also have the established corporate and creative leaders who have made it, indeed, and exercise a good bit of power and control over the culture and its institutions and, and, and society. But right alongside of those, you have new immigrant families. Many of them will be poor, but they, they're not necessarily poor. But they're, they're coming in and they're bringing in their own culture with them. You also have a lot of second-generation children who are, who are seeking to be professional in, in, in their lives. There are large numbers of students and academics. And, of course, you've got a huge concentrations of the gay community that, 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 that come in. And there's good reasons for that. So let me talk about kind of five macro char- characteristics of urban center situations, and I've already mentioned uh, a number of these. But one of them is definitely the idea of density. There's just a ton of people all packed into the, 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 same, the, the same space. Now, why is this? You know, cities are interesting places for a number of reasons, and, and this, this one may be counterintuitive. The, 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 um, the, the phrase that you have highlighted there I, I think is helpful or that's in bold. But cities are inherently or intrinsically more merciful places for the poor, for new immigrants, for people with, with alternative lifestyles, and for people of, of minorities of, of all kinds. You know, that may not sound right, because we usually think about cities being harsh places. But actually, it's very hard for a, for a very poor person to survive out in the middle of nowhere. But they come into the city, and there's a way, they find a way to survive. They find a way to make money. They find a way to get, to get a place to stay. Now, obviously, we have people on the street and people begging and those kinds of things as well, but there's usually a way for them to, to make it. I mean, we watch it in New York all the time. Immigrants will come in from some of the poorest countries of the world, from Haiti, from Senegal, from, from you know, places like that. They'll come in, and they'll, they'll find not one job. Oftentimes, they'll work two, three, two or three jobs. Their, their wives will work, and their kids end up being college-educated, end up being, becoming part of the professional community, you know, it, it's, it's really a kind of amazing. It's the dynamics of the city that make that possible. In other contexts, it just simply wouldn't happen. Of course, there's social services, governmental services, those kinds of things that, that get, get, give help. But you have this incredible uh, density, and because of that, you are pressed together with all kinds of people that are unlike yourself. And that sets up interesting dynamics in and of itself. Let me, let me push to the, to the next point, though. That density also creates an intensity, and that intensity is, is partly related to being pressed together with people that are actually like yourselves. So the unlike issue creates all kinds of conflict and interesting you know, kinds of things, but the being, being pressed together with people that like you creates a competitive environment. That's partly what makes cities harsh in, in, in many ways. Because cities attract some of the best and the brightest people, uh, and, and when they come together in their career, they tend to be like iron sharpening iron. They tend to really motivate one, one another to work, work hard. The classic story in New York is, you know, the, the, the lead violinist of small town, of, of Omaha, Nebraska, which is not such a small town, comes to New York City. They come down into the subway, and there's a, there's a guy playing the violin there with his violin case open, and he's far better, even though this person was the best in Omaha, Nebraska, all of a sudden now, he's not even as good as the guy playing the subway. 
So two things, get, you know, often to, there's two different reactions that people have. Either they go back to their room and they practice and they practice and they practice, you know, until they get better, until they're really, really good, they're pushed, or they get discouraged and they end up leaving. I mean, that's part of, part of, of the urban dynamic. But you see this, co- this competition, which is both healthy and crushing in, in both ways. And there's also a competition for, st- for, for space. There's a competition for status. There's a competition for jobs in any, any number of ways. And, and there's conflict and strife because of, of, of that, that competition. Um, next point is diversity. Global cities are, in one sense, I would say, the most diverse places on earth in relation to age, race, ethnicity, class, uh, economic status, religious worldviews, philosophical perspectives, subcultures, you know, uh, goth, hip-hop, you know, you, know, you could name any number, number of those things. Um, there's, a, um, there's a Catholic uh, parish in um, Oslo, Norway. Now, when you think of Oslo, Norway, what image comes to your mind in terms of the people? Tall, thin, blonde, blue-eyed, gorgeous people, right? In this one parish within Oslo, there are 95 languages spoken on the street. In one little part of New York City, it's called Astoria, it's out in Queens, used to be kind of a Greek enclave. There are 135 languages spoken on the street every single day. Huge Muslim population there. People basically from every culture around the world, every color, every age, you know, every, every kind of orientation that, that you can imagine. That is, that is the dynamic of, of cities. The cultural reality in the urban center situations is that basically all of the world is present. All the worldviews are present, traditional, modern, postmodern, popomos, you know, all those kinds of things. You have all the cultures, classes, religious, and they're coming into collision with one another. They're literally confronting one another. Because the way that you were raised, and this is the way you do things, is different from the way this other person was raised and the way they do things, so that when you come together, you don't do it similarly, and it creates friction. It creates strife. And people don't understand one another. And so all kinds of interesting dynamics uh, come about as as a result of that. And this next point I think is really interesting. In the urban situation, there is no one audience for the gospel. There's actually multiple audiences all the time. This is one of the things that Tim, I think, was really particularly good at with, with Redeemer. When he was first uh, approaching planting this church on the Upper East Side of New York, he literally had done an analysis of the various kinds of people that live in, in, in that area of the city. I think he'd come up with eight or nine different profiles. But literally, as he would do his sermon preparation, he would, he would, he would think of each one of those people sitting in the front row. So here you've got you know, an atheistic Jew social elite. Here you've got an ultra-Orthodox Jewish person, you know, highly religious. Right next to you is a, is a radical feminist who wants to take the head off of every man. You know, <laughs> right next to that is the young professional that, that is, is primarily concerned about his or her work. Then you've got the creative trying to make it on Broadway. You've got the, the gay or the lesbian uh, person sitting in front of you. And, and, you know, he, but as he thought about those people, and he, as he thought about preaching, he realized that he's got to find a way to communicate to all those people at the same time. And in such a way that one would not be offended, uh, or, not, or let me put it differently, that one would not be needlessly offended. Because obviously the gospel is going to bring an offense. There's, there's no question. And you actually need to challenge each one of those worldviews, each one of those approaches, you know, so that, and, and then offer the gospel as the only real plausible alternative for, for getting you what you'd most deeply want to be loved, to be significant, you know, the, the primary things that are, that, are, that are deep within our hearts. But that's a challenge <laughs> because you have to guard every word. You've got to be careful how you say things. Uh, we're, in, we're in a very weird situation right now in our nation politically. I don't know how many of you are aware <laughs> of the choices that are, that are, that are before us. But literally, Donald Trump may be the Republican nominee. And those of us who have been on the Republican side of the spectrum are really thinking about becoming Democrats. <laughs> and some of the Democrats are, are really questioning both of their candidates. Uh, and, you know, but it's, it, it's a strange situation. But you cannot, in the urban situation, kind of uh, assume a political view or political stance or kind of glibly endorse one or the other. 
you've got to be actually critical of each one of their views, and, and not only negatively critical, positively critical. What is it that this or that person brings to, to the forefront that's actually healthy? How should we think about these things, justice, injustice? How should we think about racism or, or, or you know, try, trying to eradicate it? How should we think about the poor? What are we going to do about th- those situations? You know, all those kinds of things have to be evident with, within your preaching, within your communication in, in any number of ways. So the diversity of the city tends to make people more open to new ideas, new ways of thinking, new ways of living, good, both good and bad. Urban, urbanites are far more open to conversion than what, than what you might think. In fact, one of the things we've tended to be, uh, be saying now more and more and more, that the easiest environment in the entire world to do evangelism is the city. At the same time, it's one of the most challenging to do discipleship, okay, for a whole bunch of reasons. But because you, you come from this small community, everybody knows you. Everybody knows your family. They know who your granddaddy was. They know who your great-granddaddy was, all that kind of thing. There's very little ability for you to change without taking unbelievably harsh criticism. You walk in the city, no one knows you. You can completely reinvent yourself. In fact, you can tell lies about yourself uh, that people will actually believe. But you actually have the ability to experiment with different religious views, different philosophical views, different sexual uh, ways of, of, of living your life. There's all kinds of, of things that you can do. The urban environment brings about a situation that, that is incredibly open, and that's both good and bad. And this collision that I was talking about before, the collision between worldviews, religious views, this kind of thing, that challenges people. So you've assumed all your life that the Christian view was right. But you've actually never been taught to defend your faith. You really don't know why you believe the things you do. You, you simply have. You come to the city, and those views will be challenged. What do you believe, and why do you believe it? And, and so you give this kind of simple or simplistic explanation of why you believe the things they do, and then they rip you apart. Okay? And then you're left you know, kind of trembling and thinking through, you know, is what I have believed really true or is it not? Why do I believe the things I do? Is it really plausible? You know, there was an interesting um, story one time. Some of you may have heard this story, but uh, there was a woman by the name of Mary Ellen. She had come to Christ at Redeemer, and at this point, and then she had met and married her husband, who also had come to Christ through, through Redeemer. But they were out on Long Island, and they were part of a core group planning a church. So I was working with this little core group, trying to help them get established, find a church planner to come there, that sort of thing. And at one point I asked Mary Ellen, you know, Mary Ellen, will you just kind of tell me your story? I know that you came to Christ somehow, you know, uh, through Redeemer, you know, in the city, that sort of thing, but I, I don't know the story. And she said, oh yeah, I'd love to tell you the story. So she said, you know, I was a bond broker down on Wall Street. I was in an office of about 30 or 40, you know, people, something like that. And, you know, you're pretty busy, but at times it kind of gets quiet. And so then you talk about, you know, the most recent movie or the, you know, the play that you've just seen or, you know, the band that's playing or you, you talk about political things, you know, and you even talk about religious things, that sort of thing. And there was this one guy in the, this office uh, uh, whose name was Chip, and, and Chip was a Christian, but he was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Did you pick that up? Okay, so the assumption is Christians are belligerent, ignorant, anti-intellectual, you know, obnoxious, pushy, you know, all those kinds of things. But Chip was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. And he always had the most interesting take on the conversations that, that, that took place. So he was thoughtful. He was reflective. You know, he, he was thinking careful, carefully and all those kinds of things. And so from time to time, I would go to him with the questions that I was really struggling with. How can there be a God if there's all this suffering in the world? Or all, you know, there's only 11 apologetical questions, Right. And once you figure out what those are and figure out what the answers are, you can kind of answer every question. Just figure out what, which question is being asked. So she was asking those things, and Chip could answer some of the questions, but not some of the other ones. And, and at one point, Chip said, you know, I, Mary Ellen, I think you just need to come to this church that I'm going to. Because the guy that talks there, so, so he didn't even use the word preach there, but the guy that talks there, non-religious language, he talks about these very questions that you're asking me all the time, and I really think you'd find a lot of answers so she decided to come because she trusted Chip. Chip was a genuine, authentic person who was caring, wasn't pushy, any of those kinds of things. So he, she was willing to come to this college auditorium, which could have been pretty spooky, weird, you know, that sort of thing for her. 
And she brought two other, uh, other friends with her. So these were like her protection. So, so you had three non-Christians coming. And, and so I said, well, t- you know, tell me what it was like. And, and, uh, and she said, well, it was interesting. Uh, and I said, well, how was the music? Oh, the music was fine. You know, actually, the music is excellent at, at, at Redeemer, but it's not necessarily attractive, okay? But the music was fine, you know, but, you know, uh, but, uh, but when, when, when this guy got up to talk, that's how, that's how she described it at that time, uh, she said it was interesting, at times it was humorous, but it was also profoundly disturbing because he's challenging the worldviews of, of New Yorkers at any number of points. And then she said afterwards, you know, we all went out to a bar and we couldn't help but talk about what this guy had talked about, you know, in this meeting. And she described it kind of as a lecture, you know, almost like as a college lecture, which Tim is probably a little bit like that, you know. But <laughs> um, so I said, okay, so then what happened? Well, she said, we went back the next week, and actually there were five of us. And, and, it's th- and this went on for three months, and actually we averaged about nine of us every Sunday evening. So this is a non-Christian bringing other non-Christians to church. And she said, every Sunday night we went out to a bar afterwards to drink, you know, I mean, this is not spiritual, you know, they, they, they were out, you know, typical secular New Yorkers, you know, to, to, to drink, but we always ended up talking about what Tim had talked about in the service. We couldn't help but talk about it. In fact, one, many, many nights, we argued, and I said, really, you argued about it, and, 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 he, and I said, tell me about that. He said, well, I remember this one night, there was this one guy who was furious at what Tim had said. And we were all arguing about, uh, about it with him, trying to convince him that what Tim had said was right and that he was wrong. You know, I said, well, what was it? And, 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 and she said, well, what he had done that night is he he'd basically argued that here's what New Yorkers believe. And he argued from what they were doing, what they were pursuing, back to then that means that this is what you think is of ultimate value. And he basically demonstrated that even if we were able to achieve these things, you get the Ph.D., you become, you know, you get the chair in the, in the Brooklyn uh, Philharmonic or you, you, uh, you make it in Wall Street, you know, or, or all those kinds of things. Or you find the right woman or the right man, you know, that's going to make your life work. All that. That even if you got all that kind of stuff, it wouldn't satisfy your deepest needs. And then he offered the gospel as the only plausible al- alternative, you know, and it was a, an attractive alternative. But he said, here's, here's, here's what his, his objection was. That's not who I am, and that's not what I believe. But all these people had, had realized that's exactly what we believe. In fact, they were arguing with him. Here's what you do. Here's what you're pursuing. This is what you actually believe will make your life work. You know, and then she ends up, uh, you know, I said, so, so what was the conclusion? He said, well, after three months, you know, Tim had basically either answered every objection I'd had, or he had set aside that objection so I could no longer hold on to it, kind of as a defense, I felt like I was standing face-to-face with Jesus. And I had to make a decision. I'm going to get emotional. Sorry. But I had to make a decision. Is he really who he said he is or not? Is he this Lord, liar, lunatic? I'm not sure if she thought exactly that way. But, but those are the only alternatives. And she said the evidence was compelling that he really was the Christ. So I ended up having to bend the knee to Christ. But she said there was one last a problem for me. I said, what was that? She said, well, I realized, now this is an intelligent New Yorker. She said, for me to be, become a Christian meant I had, <laughs> I had to identify with Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, Pat Robertson, uh, and George Bush. <laughs> and she wasn't sure she could do that. But indeed, you know, it was so compelling, the truth was so compelling that she realized she had to become a sister in Christ with those individuals, which she thought were cultural terrorists. And indeed, I think there's some errors in, in some, of the, some of their approach. We all have errors in, in, in our approach. But, but, uh, but that, was the, that was the dynamic. But here Tim is dealing with different religious views, philosophical views. You know, he's working through all this kind of stuff in, in the preaching. And uh, uh, so, so, so let, let me push to the next one. I think about transience. So you have, you have diversity, then you have transience. Here's one of the problems in, in all the big cities now. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to a guy in Joburg about four hours ago, three hours ago, and he was talking about this church that he started at um, 44 Stanley. I don't know if you guys know where that is, in the AFTA movie theater uh, place or whatever. But he, but he was just saying that one of the problems he's facing is that he loses at least 30% of his congregation every year just simply to mobility. 
young people that get another job in another place. It's not necessarily that they're wanting to leave the city, but opportunities come, or they're here to do you know, an advanced degree or something, and then they're finished, and then they go on, and, and that sort of thing. That's one of the, the real dynamics of cities. Is it's almost like a university ministry, where every time the new term starts, you almost have to in, you know, invent it again, and your best leadership has just left. And that, that's one of the problems. Leadership development in the urban center of churches is really tough. Because oftentimes you're going to be losing your best and brightest. Uh, they're going to go off on you. They're finally giving money. They're finally able to disciple people. You know, they're, 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 they've got your positions of, of leadership within the church, and they're gone. And you've you got to praise God that you're sending people out in the world you know, that, will, that will take the gospel elsewhere. But it's tough to, to, to build a, a, a strong church. So um, <clears throat> not only do you lose 30%, but uh, if you look at the ministry implications there, there's huge challenges for developing community. And by the way, community is the most highly prized um, uh, value of uh, kind of the young post-postmodern. Uh, they de- they, they're desperate for community because they're, they're feeling uh, cut off. And part of it is the technology stuff. I mean, if you go into any room, you'll see everybody is into their phones and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. They're relating that way rather than relating to, to other human beings in, in, a, in a tactile, uh, tactile sense. So they're, they're dying for a community. It, huge challenges for leadership, discipleship, uh, huge leadership for financial health of the church. That's what the financial health one is. And for stability, to feel like you've actually got momentum and you can, you can build this church and become what it needs to be. It's also a globalized environment. Um, and what that means is that, and Stephen uh, made some reference to this, but um, they, the, the people in the cities are going to tend to have values that are dissimilar to people outside the city or, you know, 30 miles away. They're going to be, the people there are going to be much different. And they're actually going to be much more like people in, in other world-class cities. So one of the things we discovered is that uh, people in Hong Kong were more similar to Manhattanites then Manhattanites were similar to people living out in Pennsylvania, which is just, you know, 40 miles away, 50 miles away. The value system was different, you know, all those kinds of things. So you've got to deal with that globalized culture. You've got to understand what that globalized culture is and what drives them uh, and those kinds of things in order to, to effectively uh, communicate to them. So they're obviously less provincial, less restricted in, in, in their thinking and those kinds of things. And you, have to, you have to figure out how to go at that, not only in your preaching, but in the way you relate to people and all those other kinds of things. So let me, let me push through, um, how, uh, how long? Yeah, you've, you've got most of the document. So should I just pause there? I think we've got 10 minutes for Okay, good. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that's why I gave you the document. It was better to give you it in writing so you can re- read through it and then we can talk about it or, or whatever. So. All right, questions or concerns or comments or whatever. Yes, brother. And, well, what's, what's interesting, or, or in, I don't know that I can really answer your question all that well, but, but what's interesting is that the digital stuff actually provides them with a kind of community. I don't want to say a sense of community, because I think it's more than that. I actually think there's, there, there is a real form of community that is there, but it's not sufficient. Because nobody is going to confront you with your defects, usually through the phone, it's only when porcupines snuggle up that they begin to prick each other. So when we come together and we literally are, are interacting with one another face to face, that's when we actually understand real love or we understand rejection or we're able to speak into somebody's life or receive you know, uh, somebody speaking in, into our lives. But they're, they're resistant to it. So they, they want it and yet they resist it. So the church has got to figure out how can we actually create community. And part of that has been done with small groups. 
Uh, and, and we definitely, I would say Redeemer, particularly in New York City, relies upon small groups for a good bit, a bit of that community. But I think the normal church, and I wouldn't describe uh, Redeemer as a normal church in, in many ways, and part of that is because of Tim. It sets up an a- abnormal kind of a situation. But you've got to figure out how are you going to bring people into kind of intense relationships. Um, and I think you're, you, you, know, you have to be creative about that. So you do have to create kind of fellowships of people in a number of different ways. And, and usually it's got to be more than just the small group. There's got to be a larger group. And in the larger churches, it's harder to do that. Uh, I know in our context, you don't have spaces, literally physical spaces, where you can gather 60 or 70 people in a room without paying a lot of money for those. You know? So all the spaces in New York tend to be quite small. Your apartments are small. The restaurants, it's four or five people together, you know, that kind of thing. It's hard to do a large group type thing. So that's not much of an answer for it. But, but, but I do think that both the, 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 a form of community and the sense of community works against real community or a greater community. So it's, it's kind of a, there's a push-pull in, in that. So, Yes? I haven't actually read it. I, I think that's all about the New York uh, New York City project. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 what we're doing? Well, Redeemer's in the midst of, of a pretty major transition in a number of different ways. So, I, I think most of you know that Tim will step down as pastor of Redeemer in June uh, next year. Um, and the three Redeemer churches that are in existence right now. <laughs> when's he coming Stephen <laughs> he is going to actually be more available globally so uh, the, the, on, on, on the upside he is going to become full time with us which is good on the downside is that he really doesn't want to travel much more than he's traveling now but he will be more available globally than what he has in the past which is actually pretty, pretty, pretty encouraging to us but uh, so I think there's a number of factors in the, in the New York project. One of them is that as the three Redeemer congregations become separate churches, and indeed they'll be, they'll be particularized as, as individual churches, they may share some administrative services together still. I'm not sure. They haven't figured that out. And there's certain entities that Redeemer has created that are still under the church. There's a counseling center. There's a center for faith and work. That's all church, uh, Redeemer-owned stuff. They're talking about maybe the Center for Faith and Work migrating to be under us. I'm not sure if we want that or don't want that or whatever. Uh, I, I, I actually prefer that it would be a separate not-for-profit corporation that we could kind of buy services from rather than kind of incorporate it and just become a larger and larger organization. I'm a little afraid of, of losing our focus. But, but uh, what Redeemer is committed to, and we're, we're committed to helping them, is uh, they want to they try to plant a, another 150 urban center churches. So these would be the near parts of Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, and then Manhattan. Uh, and that's part of a larger initiative to, to plant many more churches than that. But part of the New York project is they, uh, Tim would love to establish the other two congregations with buildings. I actually think that's a mistake. Okay, I probably shouldn't say this when I'm being recorded. But, but uh, he knows that I think it's a mistake, and, we, and we've talked about it. But uh, but the, the, what Tim is, is probably going to devote himself to for the next 10 to 15 years is trying to build out a healthy gospel ecosystem in New York City. So we've done pretty well so far. In fact, let me give you just a couple of stats that, that may or may not be helpful to you. But we had a study done in 2009. This was the 20-year mark of Redeemer's existence. And, and uh, they had data from 1989 when Tim and Kathy first came to the city. But at that point... The, the, uh, I think the percentage of people living in Manhattan that were attending an evangelical church of some, of some sort was approximately uh, 3.2%. I mean, not, I'm, I'm sorry, 0.32%. Uh, uh, okay? So less than one half of 1% of Manhattanites living uh, actually from uh, the top of the park down through lower, lower Manhattan. In, in, um, in 2009, 20 years later, that percentage had gone up to 3.47%, I think, was, was the total. Which, that may not sound like much, but in Manhattan, that was huge. 
and a hundred churches have been planted in the city, in, in Manhattan, in that area, uh, over that 20-year period. Um, we, we actually were actively involved with helping plant 35 of those, but 65 of them had come into being, I think, as a result of kind of spontaneous uh, you know, spiritual activity. Is it kind of once you get going, it inspires others to do it. And, and it was really delightful for us to actually discover that there were that many churches, you know, evangelical churches, in, in that area. And then what was fascinating is that five years later, in 2004, we updated the study, and the percentage uh, uh, had risen to over 5.5%, which that's pretty incredible, you know. And our hope is that, that Manhattan, uh, the, that area, will rise to at least having 10% of the population that lives there actually attending evangelical churches. That was the only way we could, we could kind of uh, uh, identify, are these real believers in Christ, or are they just nominal Christians, or that kind of thing. Do you have a question there? Um, I would say that most of them, so most, what is most, uh, but, but probably at least 80% are still relatively homogenous in terms of makeup. So, so they may be Hispanic, or they may be African American, or they may be Haitian, or they may be you know, Anglo culture, that sort of thing. So you know, even the stats about Redeemer itself are somewhat misleading in that uh, Redeemer is 45% Asian, and uh, approximately 50% what we would call white. I, I don't know if white's a good descriptor anymore. And then another 5% of, of kind of mix. But those Asians are actually Anglo in culture. So they've gone to Harvard or Yale or Columbia or NYU or Princeton and that sort of thing. So they've actually imbibed Anglo, um, pretty elitist culture. Uh, not necessarily, but, but, but for most of, them, most of them, yeah, it probably would be. But a lot of them would be one and a half, you know, what we would call one and a half. Uh, so they might have been born elsewhere, but they were raised in the United States. Uh, yeah, I would say there is a drive both to plant multi-ethnic churches and also to diversify the churches that are, that are there. Um, but it is, it is a real struggle, uh, and um, I don't think it's a result of, of um, people just targeting one, kinds of, one kind of person, but it, it is a result of you know, some of these cultural things, the way in which you do things, invite certain people to come and almost disinvites others to come. So while I think in a city, you, we need to try to be as intentionally diverse as possible, there are limits to that. So one of the illustrations I use, if, if anybody ever me talk too much, or talk very much, you, you know that I use this illustration a lot. But if you think about a, continua, a continuum of you know, diverse kinds of, of people, whether you're talking about socioeconomic or age or all those kinds of things, generally speaking, we will find ourselves being affected with a certain, um, a certain segment of the population. So under, under the kingdom, we're supposed to stretch, right, and try to include as many different kinds of person, people as possible. But as you stretch, there's a certain point at which, as you stretch, you actually move your, 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 your place on the continuum. Because every decision you make in terms of contextualization is both inclusive and exclusive at the same time. So the vocabulary you use, or the illustrations you use, or the way in which you go about sermonizing, or the amount of emotion, or the more reserved it is, each one of those things will affect certain people and whether or not they feel comfortable, whether or not this feels home to them, irrespective of whether they've had any experience with the church or Christ or, or what have you. So we've got, to be, we've got to bear that in mind. So does that release us then from having to do anything more than reach the people that we're effective with? I don't think it does. So if, if, you, if, you, if you're not going to be effective, so I, I'm a, a, I, yeah, I'm 62 now. I was going to say I'm 60. But I'm a 62-year-old white guy, okay? Am I the guy to, to reach hip-hop kids in the Bronx? I would suggest I'm not, okay? I don't know how to move. I don't know how to rap, you know. Uh, I don't really know the, 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 know the culture, the, those, those kinds of things. Well, you can do it if you just 
Yeah, yeah. You bet. <laughs> See, you guys are laughing at me. You're not laughing with me. You're laughing at me. <laughs> but but so, so what's my obligation as an empowered white guy, you know, that has knowledge and, and money and some of those kinds of things? I, I need to try to reach the, the kinds of people that I can be most effective with. But I've got to turn their hearts to other people, people unlike themselves, and actually try to come alongside of other leaders who can more effectively reach another swath of of the continuum. Now, many of these continuums will actually overlap, and oftentimes you have to use transition figures that stand between two worlds in order to raise raise up the next generation. Otherwise, it'll feel and it'll actually be paternalistic. So if you have your token, whatever it is, that, that, is, that is a prescription for disaster. You know, that, you, you can't make it work that way. But I think the, 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 the challenges of, of and, and I tend to talk about multi-ethnicity rather than multiculturalism. Uh, you know, because in one sense, I don't think that um, any church can be truly multicultural. You, you end up either creating a hybrid culture or you end up, the dominant culture tends to reign and other people will, will go ahead and, and kind of, you know, um, um, you know, agree to, to, to function in that style. But, but in, in multi-ethnic churches, I think you can create a hybrid, hybrid culture, which is neither one or the other. One of the illustrations of this, I don't know how many of you guys know the, the uh, network in the States called Rebuild. It was led by a guy for a long time by the name of Dahati Lewis. So he was a, he was a black uh, athlete. His dad was a professional football player. Comes to Christ, I think, in Texas someplace. Maybe it was Arkansas. And um, anyways, he comes to Christ in, in essence, a white environment. So, you know, but, he, but he, he's really born again. And so the primary Bible studies he goes are led by white guys. So he tries to bring his fellow players, you know, to these churches and, and to these Bible studies. And, you know, I didn't even understand the joke when he, when he first said it. But there'd be some white guy up, up there playing acoustic guitar. I like acoustic guitar. But evidently, that was not cool for their culture, you know, so electric guitars and that kind of thing. But, but anyways, we, so they, all these guys would say to Dahati, we don't get this. You know, why are you going to this thing? So why don't you come to the church we've been going to, even though they weren't Christians, they're, you know, they, they would go to a church. So Dahati would go to that church, and there was just no real gospel. So here's the way Dahati described it. Here were my choices. I could either go to a church that gets my theology but not my culture, or I could go to a church that gets my culture but not my theology. Here's what I needed. I needed a church that would both get my culture and get my theology. That's the challenge of the, of the next generation, of the newer generations. We've got to create hybrid, new hybrid uh, congregations that are actually get the culture and get, get the theology and, and not sacrifice either one of them. And the urban environment provides actually a, a, a great laboratory to do that. You can, you can experiment with all kinds of different things there. You can make uh, real mistakes, by the way, and still be forgiven. As long as you're really earnest, you're, you're, you're authentic, you're really trying to go after the, 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 you know, the, the biblical values, you know, people will forgive. And, you, and, and if you're open to maybe doing things or adjusting things a different way, you can create really a, a beautiful thing. So... You know, obviously, particularly in South Africa, I mean, you guys are, the, the culture is raging now in terms of the racial divides and that kind of stuff, and you guys have to figure it out, particularly as a, de- as a network, you guys have got to figure out how can we create new kinds of churches that will actually be able to span, you know, span some of those divides and, and incorporate people. Yes, ma'am. Um. Transcultural. Um, you're talking about Leonce Crump, yeah. Uh, and uh, One uh, uh, Makatle up in up in Pretoria is is using using as well. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, it's okay. Uh, and and the way that that One explained it, I think I think Leonce uh, uh, was the one that probably gave this definition. But trans meaning kind of above or cross, uh, and trying to in essence create a new culture. That's kind of what what I'm talking about. So. We often talk about City City actually as trying to be transdenominational, meaning not, not interdenominational. We're not necessarily trying to get denominations to kind of do something together and, and create something new, but, but, but we, we want to be able to work with any number of denominations and networks that may have differing values but share, share, share the gospel. Uh, so the transcultural thing is okay. You know, we'll see how it actually works out in practice. So... I think One's experiment in Pretoria is pretty interesting. 
And so far, he's been able to combine um, a number of different uh, black uh, people from a number of different tribal backgrounds, as well as uh, colored and, and then a number of whites. Uh, but what they share is they're all middle class or rising middle class. So, so actually, the socioeconomic thing is the great leveler. You know, that, that's, that, that's, the, that's actually the harder thing to cross, is when it's poverty versus wealth. Those are much more difficult than the racial issues. So, I mean, that's my opinion. So, uh, but I hear you guys echoing me. Good, good, good. Yeah. Uh, 